0: Often in our lives, we despise authority. Authorities and those in authority over us, often in our culture, are looked down upon. We wrestle and struggle to submit to those in authority over us. Many of us hate authority. From the earliest days, we wrestle with authority. Our parents give instructions and we despise them. We ignore them. As we grow older, we find that that freedom we seek from authority is fleeting. We soon have teachers and bosses and Maybe even relationships where others are in authority over us. We disdain authority. We can't stand it when someone tells us what to do. In our own culture, there is an apprehension to authority. Authority is seen as bad, corrupt, no good. In our culture today, many reject Authoritarianism, someone being able to tell someone else what to do. You'll hear it in comments like, you have no authority to tell me how to live or what to do. You and I, on a daily basis, undermine authority in small ways from speeding, perhaps or an inability to follow certain laws. We do it without thinking, though at the root of it is our own sinful hearts. The apprehension to authority, the rejection of authority, the the hatred of authority, has its root in the fall of man. In other words, this disdain for authority is not just an American problem. It's not just a Western problem. It's a human problem. It has stretches back far to our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they disdained God's authority, they hated His authority and rebelled against it. But the Bible says something different than our culture and even that of Adam and Eve, that authority used rightly is good. And it leads to human flourishing. It leads to blessings and honors. And and the book of 1 Samuel is, is really about authority and leadership. What kind of leadership, what kind of authority is good and right and leads to the kind of flourishing and And I want to begin this morning, not with 1 Samuel chapter 30. So if you're already there, uh, you're close to where we're going to begin. I want to begin with the end. Now as I said many weeks ago, 1 and 2 Samuel are really just one book. In the English translations and uh, really since the Reformation, it's been divided into two books, the First and Second Samuel, due to its length. And, And I want to begin this morning with David's final words. David's final words in 2 Samuel 23. So turn there now with me. 2 Samuel 23. We will go back to 1 Samuel in just a moment. I want to give you uh, the end first. 2 Samuel 23. Page 275. An English Standard Translation. 2 Samuel 23. Now these are the last words of David: The Oracle of David, the Son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who is raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. Okay, David, what has he said? <laughs> When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Do you see that? What is it about a good leader? He dawns on them like the morning light, it, like the sun rising in the morning, like a, that new day bright shining on a cloud this morning, beautiful and good and glorious. Like the rain that makes the grass sprout it leads to flourishing. It's good, and it's good for us. The point that David is making here and the point of 1 Samuel is that when God's people are led by a godly king, by a godly man, then it leads to their blessing. It leads to their flourishing and growing. That leadership is good. So as we conclude our study of 1 Samuel this week, we are reminded that the narrator has, has presented us several characters throughout our story. We saw a contrast between the strong and the weak. The significant and the insignificant. As the story unfolded before us, it turned our attention not to the leaders that were strong and powerful, but to the leaders who were weak and insignificant. Weak like Samuel. Insignificant like David. The characters of this story reflect God's character. A young boy like Samuel who was raised... In the house of the Lord. In contrast to wicked Eli and his, his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. It was the righteous Samuel who was raised up to, to lead God's people to, to calling their first king. But the people wanted a king like the world around them. They looked to the Amalekites, to the Philistines. They looked to the, the people around them and they said, We want a king like the world around us. We want a strong and rich and noble king. But this king proved to be insufficient to lead God's people. This king only served himself. And because of that, the people suffered. We learned also in this story that God doesn't choose his leaders the way the world does. And this story reminds us that God is not done with his people, though they sin against him. Though they live in rebellion. This is a time of rebellion. A time of of wickedness. A a time in which the the author of Judges says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A, A world much like our own. But the story reminds us that God is faithful to his promises even when his people are unfaithful. And as the story unfolded before us, I hope that you have seen that God is the main character. That he is sovereignly sovereignly ruling over his people. Though they despised and rejected him as king, he remained their king. And God was gracious to give God's people the king they needed by choosing a man whom he said was after his own heart. King David proved to be the king that, that all other kings would be modeled. But even King David failed. Even King David had his problems and his failures. He was a sinner. And so King David pointed to a greater king that would come. One of King David's great grandsons. King Jesus. The king that all of us need. The story of 1 Samuel teaches us of the king that we all need. That God provided for us in Jesus. I invite you to turn back to 1 Samuel. Chapter 30, as we conclude our study, I pray that it has bared much fruit and has been helpful to us in our time, but as is always joyful, to move on. We're going to consider here today chapters 30 and 31, and I will begin reading in verse 1 and read through the end of the, of the book. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. It overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the son of Na- the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest and the son of the son of Ahimelech, "Bring the ephod." So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? The Lord answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the the brook, They found an Egyptian in an open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. When he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. My master left me behind because I fell sick 3 days ago. When we had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against the which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, "Will you take me down to this ban?" And he said, "Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of your master, of my master." And I will take you down to this ban. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Brazor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share... Is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent a part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatter, in Arir, in Siphonmon, in Eshtimoah, in Raqqal, in the cities of the Jeharmalites, in the cities of the Kenites, the, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and, and, and Malchishua, the sons of Saul, The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon him. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those behind the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took, took the body of Saul and the bodies of the sons who were on the wall of Bethshan, And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Friends, what is the point of this? Is this God provides us the king we need in Jesus Christ who will deliver us from our enemies and give us the blessing of his good rule. So the purpose of our time this morning is, is to really consider two lives. There really is only two ways to live. There is only two ways to live. Though the world may offer you plethora of options, the Bible makes clear. Fundamentally, painfully, crystal clear. There are only two ways to live. Before us this morning... There are two men who have chosen two different ways to live. One choosing to live for God. The other choosing to live against God. Friends, that is your choice this morning. You only have two ways to live. There's no middle way. There's no multiple option. There is only two ways. And before us this morning, I want us to consider the two ways to live. The first way, following the Lord, leads to victory and honor. And the second way, following yourself, Following your own way, going about life your own way, doing it apart from God. Well, as we see in the text, it leads to death and disgrace. Well, these are our two points this morning, and we'll consider them quite briefly. We won't be able to get into all the nitty gritty details. That's for your own. Benefit in study, but I hope to give an overview of of what we consider here. First, following the Lord leads to victory and honor. Last week we left David discouraged. You'll be reminded that David has taken up residence in the enemy's land. He is living in Philistia. Uh, Philistia was the arch enemy of the Israelite people. They were... Uh, constant enemies. And David has taken up residence there because Saul has driven him from the land. Saul was insane. He had grown crazy uh, in his pursuit of David. And David had moved to Philistia to get away from Saul. And he, as we saw last week, was asked to leave, to go home. Go back to Ziklag. Ziklag was the territory that had been given to him by one of the rulers of Philistia to live in. Uh, David had 600 men plus wives and children and and servants and so uh, a large crowd had amassed some maybe 2000 was with David and his uh, company and as we are told here in verses 1 through 6 there's tragedy at home uh, we are told that the amalekites have risen up against you'll be reminded that all of the Philistine armies have gathered at Aphek. They have left and and essentially gone north towards Judah in order to attack them. And the Amalekites, who are at the south, say, hey, here's a great opportunity. The army is away. Let's go and attack Ziklag and Regions of Judah and Philistia. And while David and his men are away, we are told in the text that uh, the Amalekites have taken raid and have burned Ziklag with fire. They have completely annihilated the city. They have burned it down. They have taken all of David's men, all of their wives and children, sons and daughters. This is a terrible... Terrible situation. David and his men have been dismissed from fighting in a con home. They find their families kidnapped and their city smoldering with fire. Truly a helpless situation. And as we see in the text, look with us again, verse 4, And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength in them to weep. Imagine you return home from a trip. And you find your family gone, your house burning to the ground. And there is no more strength in you than to weep, to cry out until there is no more tears to cry. They are in great anguish. And rightly so, you see in verse 5, that the men turn on David. David's. we were told in verse 5 that his wives have been taken captive. And then verse 6, David was greatly distressed. Why? For the people spoke of stoning him. David, this is your fault. If you and Saul would have patched things up, if you wouldn't have been here running from Saul, it's all your fault, David. You've caused this whole thing to happen. If you would have just gone and lived with Saul and and submitted to him, then then none of this would would have happened. This is your fault. Immediately, they began to to turn on David. This isn't the kind of king that we want. This this is what happens. Friends, I want to remind you of this one truth here. here. Here's the principle. Following the Lord... Does not lead to blessing immediately. That's the truth here. David was following the Lord, but it didn't mean it was all sunshine and all, all clear skies. Oh, this is pain and suffering. Following the Lord is costly, following the Lord is difficult. Following God does not come without trials and great difficulty. And oftentimes, I want you to see something here. Now, the last week, we really got on to David, didn't we? In chapter 29 and the weeks ahead, we have been hard on David. David has been faithless at times. David has, has not been a good model. Isn't it funny how God uses trial to draw us to Him? <laughs> Notice with me in the text, in verse 6, what happens. How does David respond to this horrific situation? Look there at the bottom of verse 6, the end there. He, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David's back. David is reengaging with the Lord. David is turning. He's repenting. He's coming back. His days of wondering, his days of doubt, his days of fighting in the enemy's army are over. David is re-engaging with the Lord. He is strengthening himself in the Lord his God. The text is meant to, to show us what God's king will do in the midst of tragedy. He will not turn to himself, but turn to the Lord. And that's exactly what he does in verses 10 through. Verses 7-10. through Notice what David does. David's first step is to turn to the Lord in prayer and worship. He calls Abiathar the priest. He says, Abiathar, I need the ephod. That ephod was the tool that was used to communicate with God. It was a tool that the priest had. And you'll remember that Saul has killed all the priests. There's only one ephod left. It's under the control of David. And David asks for it so that he can inquire of the Lord. In short, what David is doing is praying. God, what should I do? David's first step here is to cry out to God. It's his best step. It's the right step. It's the step to say, I'm not going to continue to wallow in my pain and suffering, but I'm going to turn to the Lord. David is back. He is back to following the Lord. David is going to follow the Lord, his God. So David turns. To that rock that he sings about, his rock and his redeemer. He turns to the Lord as God, and he uses this tool to call out to God. And we learn here in verses 10 7 through 10 that, that God says, Yes, go. I want you to go. I'm answering your prayer. David has learned that he must return to following the Lord. The the days of his wandering are over. It is time to ascend the the throne. This is, if you will, this chapter serves as a final test for David. One thing I encourage you to maybe think more about is how each of these paragraphs seem to formalize a a point of David's kingship. That David is going to be a king who follows the Lord. Uh, David is going to be a king who is merciful to the outsider. David is going to be the king who will deliver his people from enemies. David is going to be the king who is not going to follow worthless men, but is going to follow wisdom and righteousness. David is going to be the king who is going to bless the people of Israel. Trials often lead us to prayer and worship. Well, in verses 11 through 15, you see that David is going to be the kind of king that David will be. He will be a merciful king. Having received the affirmative from the Lord to go and to attack the Amalekites, David finds and his men find this Egyptian. I don't think it's by coincidence that it was an Egyptian that was found. Nor do I think it's a coincidence that it was a slave that was found. All of this is to prove the kind of mercy that David is going to show to those around them. That David will be a king who is merciful to the weak. Upon finding this man and upon finding out who this man works for, David is not filled with rage. David does not immediately strike him dead as Saul would have done, but he strengthens him. And in verse 15, it implies that David obeys and affirms what this man requests Swear to me that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master. What David is doing here in this text is not only being a merciful king, but David is being a king who obeys the law. See, God had commanded His people that when a servant pleads for mercy, that they are to show mercy and not return a slave to its master. This was in the law. And here, David proves to be a a, a king who's not only going to be merciful, but a king who is going to obey the law. David was the kind of righteous king the people needed. In verse 16-20, through we are told that David goes down and strikes the Amalekites. Let's consider it just very briefly, a few details. Verse 16, And when he had taken him down, that is the servant, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of the great spoil that had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. In other words, (laughs) eat, drink, and be merry, right? Uh, Everything is great. Just very quickly, we want to remind ourselves of who these individuals are, who these Amalekites are. The Amalekites were a a kind of nomadic tribe. They were, if you will, kind of like pests. Uh, They would roam around and eat and then uh, nomadically move from place to place, devouring as they went along and moving. They didn't have a permanent uh, place of location. They would roam through the countryside, taking what they could and devouring the land and moving on to the next place. And, And that's who they proved to be. The Amalekites were also a people who were enemies to the Israelites. When the Israelites had first came into the land, uh, one of the things that the Israelites were commanded to do was to have all their strong and valiant men, the warriors, to be at the front of the parade and, and all the weaker children to be and, and the women to be at the end. And what the Amalekites did was they saw this weakness and they came around the backside and attacked the women and children of Israel. Unprotected. They were weaklings. They... Uh, They were evil and wicked. And God had said to them, God had prophesied that the Amalekites would be annihilated from the face of the earth. And you'll be reminded in the story of 1 Samuel that the first king of Israel, King Saul, was instructed by the Lord to annihilate, to annihilate, completely erase them from the face of the earth. And he disobeyed. And he didn't do it. And what we find David here doing is doing exactly what Saul was unwilling to do. In other words, David is fulfilling the word of the Lord. He is fulfilling the promise, the prophetic word that God had promised. And David is giving victory over the enemy. Where Saul had failed to follow God's word and annihilate this people, David obeys and he destroys them. Though some escaped, David's intent is clear. It is to kill them for what they have done. But more than that, I want you to see something so profound and so amazing. I hope that it causes your soul to wonder at God. We are told in verse 17, look with me there, that David had struck them down from twilight until evening the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 of them. So 400 men got away. David killed them. David had de- decisive victory. Notice here the common verse 18. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Now listen. Nothing was missing whether great or small. Son or daughter, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. I want to phrase it this way. All those who were under the care of David were safe. He lost none of them. Sounds strangely familiar to something Jesus said. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And I shall lose none of them. That's the king God's people needed. A king who would protect them. A king who would keep them safe. A king who would secure them. A king we find in Jesus. Nothing is lost under his authority and power this is the king we all need and this points us to to Jesus a, a king who promises that that none shall be lost under my authority under my care that under my kingship all that the father gives to me will be safe and secure this king here in this text and Rescuing his people points us to Jesus who promises the same. We also see in the text in verses 20 through 25 that David is a king who will be righteous. David here has a test. As he returns from the battle, he has great spoil. They have not only what was theirs, but all that the Amalekites had gathered in their various raids. So so there's a great abundance of spoil here through this battle. David is tempted here in verse 23 by the wicked and worthless fellows. Verse 22 is meant to to hearken as as an echo, a distant echo in the book. Remember that word worthless was the word used to describe Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. They were worthless men who disobeyed the Lord. And, and this hearkens like an echo all throughout the pages of the book and reminds us of this temptation. Will this king follow the worthless wisdom of the world or will he follow the righteous wisdom of God? David is tempted to follow their advice. Their advice was simply this hey, you get what you deserve, you get what you work for. You, you're weak, you're helpless. You're the last. You didn't come out to battle with us. You didn't fight with us. You were sitting at home. You were too tired. You don't get anything. But I hope that as you think about what's going on here, that it makes sense to you why Jesus says the things that he says in the Gospels about those that are first will be last and those that are last will be first. I hope that you see the the parallels here when Jesus tells a parable about workers going out into a field and how he says that he'll pay them all equally. If you go out and work today, I'm going to give you this amount, regardless if you go in first in the morning or if you're coming in last in the day, you're going to get all. It's a prototype right here, David is the prototype king of what Jesus fulfills. King who is righteous and equitable. These are the standards of heaven. These are the standards that will be reflected in Jesus. Finally, we see here in verses 26 through 31 that David will be a king who receives honor and who blesses his people. David, we're told, doesn't keep all the spoil. In verse 20, we were told that his men were chanting, this is David's spoil, this is David's spoil, this is David's spoil. In other words, God bless you, David, and it's yours for your own joy and your own satisfaction. But notice what David does. David doesn't say, yeah, you're right, thank you. I'm going to go put that in the bank. I'm going to keep that for myself. No, David gives away. David gives it away. He begins to distribute the blessings that God had given him throughout the land. All of those, we are told, that protected him. All of those that had given him a place to sleep and a place where he had roamed. All those who, who had served to advance his kingship. David here honors them and he shares the Lord's blessing. The point of the text is meant to show us that those who live under the authority of the Christ, the Davidic King, will receive blessing and honor. The very last place that is mentioned in verse 31 is Hebron. Hebron is the place where David, in just a matter of days, will be anointed king. David is ascending his throne. But the point remains the same. Who will you follow? Who will you follow? Which way will you live? Will you follow this king? At home, will you follow this king? You can say you're following Jesus, but if you're not living in subjection to him, if you're not going his way, which way is he going? Well, he tells you where he's going. Jesus is very clear about what it means to follow Him. He, he's, he's not ashamed. He's not shy. He, he's not confused. And nor does He seek to confuse. He's very clear. He says to you, if you want to follow Me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Me where I go. Where does Jesus go? Jesus doesn't go to the, to the palaces of this world. Jesus doesn't go to the wealthy and the noble. Jesus goes to to the sinner. To the outcast. To the despised and rejected. Jesus himself goes to a place of death. For our sin. Jesus says it this way. Those that want to follow me have to go through the narrow gate. For wide is the way that leads to destruction. And many will find it. Which way are you going today in your home? Which way are you going in your marriage? Who are you following? Is King Jesus the the one who reigns over your marriage? What about at work? Are you honest at work with your time and your effort? Are you honest in your dealings in the community with your neighbors? Is Jesus in control This week, as you go and vote, is Jesus your king? Or is your hope in who's the next governor of Maryland? Or is your hope in who the next senator will be? Or or what some referendum will do for you? What is your hope? Brothers and sisters, as a congregation, is Jesus our king? Or do we seek to do church our own way? Let me be very clear. God cares how He's worshipped. Jesus cares about His church. And He's left us a lot of things to say about what a church is. What a church member should be. What we should be doing as a congregation. And he's not left that for pastors to think up on their own. Thankfully, He's he's written instructions. So, so brothers and sisters, submitting to God and His Word and following what He has to say is how we make Him our King. How we go His way rather than our own way. Friend, you, you have a choice. I have a choice. We all have this choice to make. Every one of us. Will we follow ourselves or will we follow the Lord? Will we choose to follow the Lord the, the way David did? He, he followed the Lord which led to victory and honor? Will we, as Peter reminds us, The honor and blessing we receive for following Christ. Yes, yes, we will face trial for following Christ. Yes, sometimes following Christ will lead to to greater turmoil and greater suffering in our lives. But our hope is in that eternal reward. Well, if following the Lord leads to victory and honor, where does following ourselves lead? Verse chapter 31 is a very dark chapter. Is it okay to follow your conscience? Should we take old Jiminy Cricket's uh, advice and let our conscience be our God? I think the answer to that is in chapter 31. Following yourself leads to death and destruction. Following yourself, going your own way, living life however you want, despising the Word of God, choosing, I'll obey God here, but over here... I'll, I'll just keep doing my own thing. It's an all or none situation. You recognize that? Remember, Saul was faithful in some ways. Saul was obedient 98% of the time. I mean, he did kill the Amalekites. Although there's that one little thing where he you know, let the king live. That's okay. He did put all the necromancers, all the palm readers and witches out of the lake. He got rid of them, but there was that one time, you know, he conjured up the dead spirit of Saul. Friend, following yourself will lead you to death and destruction and disgrace. We see here in verses 1 through 7, a king overtaken by providence and judgment. You will remember a few weeks ago, in chapter 28, Samuel prophesied that tomorrow you will be with me. In other words, tomorrow you're going to die. You and all your sons. In a single day, you will die. That day had come. Saul's day had come. This was a sad end to an already sad life. A life lived for his own glory in his own selfishness. We're told in the text that the Philistines overpowered Saul and his men. Not because the Philistines were stronger. No, 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 no. But because God was using these evil Philistines as instruments to exact his judgment upon Saul's disobedience. We're told that the armor that his armor failed and that the archers struck him badly. Saul is dying there on the mountain. He is bleeding to death, and he is concerned about what will happen to him if he is caught alive. Rightly so. He would have been tortured. He would have been made a spectacle. He would have been perhaps drugged around town and propped up and, and mocked and ridiculed. And so he seeks to expedite his own death by killing himself. Truly tragic death. He has to take matters into his own hands. And commit suicide. He asks his armor bearer to do it, but he's unwilling. Unwilling to do it. It's truly a a sad end. There's no enduring legacy of faithfulness for Saul. This is his final mark on history. Dying on a hill on Mount Gilboa. He'll forever be known as the first king of Israel. But a king who for the last three plus thousands of years have, has been used an example of what, what happens when you follow yourself. But as you think about this king and his failures, Saul also points us to Jesus. Saul is an anti-type of who Jesus proved to be. Where Saul failed, Jesus obeyed. Where Saul lived his life against God and contrary to God's word, Jesus dies, Though he was perfectly innocent. As we see this king die on a hill, we are reminded of another king who would die on a hill. Just a matter of miles away from this hill. Where Jesus Christ would die not for his own sins. He he would not be dying the way Saul is dying because he had done something wrong. No, Saul rightly deserves this judgment. And you know, for you and I, we deserve judgment too. But see, here's what happens. You woke up this morning. Though you deserve death. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And sometimes God is more patient with some sinners than others. Every morning you get up. The fact that you get up is a measure of God's mercy because you didn't deserve to. You deserved what Saul deserved. Death. You see, one sin against an infinitely holy and good God deserves, demands an infinite punishment. So this morning, if you think, know I'm not that bad. well, that, that little sin that you commit is sufficient to condemn you and I for all of eternity. Reminds us of our need for Christ. For King Jesus, who would go to that hill and die. For our sin. For going our own way. Brothers and sisters, there is hope for us today. That Jesus Christ died for our sins, but more than lay slain on the Mount of Gilboa, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. This text anticipates a greater king who would come and die so that you could turn from your sins and stop living life your own way. Friend, if you keep doing life your own way, this chapter is your end. It may look a little different, but nonetheless, it will end in your eternal death and disgrace. You will fade from history. You will fade from our minds without any enduring legacy. But if you will follow Christ, There will be not only internal life, but a legacy to pass on from generation to generation that he or she chose Christ. He or she chose to go God's way and not their own way. Brothers and sisters, following Christ leads to life. Following yourself leads to death. And there is tremendous mercy for us this morning. Though we deserve chapter 31, what has been given to us is a new chapter. Where you can turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And He will cast them as far as the east is from the west. Our first song we sang this morning. His Mercy is More was a song inspired by a letter that John Newton, John Newton, the the architect and crafter of Amazing Grace, right? You know that song, Amazing Grace? John Newton wrote a letter once. This is what he said in this letter. Our sins are many, but His mercies are more. Our sins are great, but His righteousness is greater. We are weak, but He is power. Most of our complaints are only to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. And these evils are not removed in a day. Wait on the Lord, and He will enable you to see more and more of the power and grace of our High Priest. The more you know Him, the better you will trust Him. The more you trust Him, the better you will love Him. The more you love Him, the better you will serve Him. This is our God's way. You are not called to buy, but to beg. Not to be strong in yourself, but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He is teaching you these things, and I trust He will teach you to the end. Remember, the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak, which increases slowly, but surely Many suns, showers, and frosts pass upon it before it comes to perfection. And in winter, when it seems dead, it has gathered strength at the root. Be humble, watchful, and diligent in the means, and endeavor to look through all and fix your eyes upon Jesus. And all shall be well. Friends, that is our reminder this morning. That our sins, they may be many. They may be numerous. They may be infinite. But at the end of the day, His mercy is more. His mercy will always be more. His mercy will always be greater. And so this morning, if you've lived your life, if if even now as a Christian you're tempted to go your own way, His mercy is more. So which way will you choose? Will you choose the one who's promised to come? The one, this King who promises to reign over life and death? I conclude with these words from John in Revelation in chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ reigns. He is our King. Will you follow Him today? Will you turn from your sin and trust in the Alpha and the Omega, in the beginning and the end? For through Him comes life eternally. Let's pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that Your grace be found today, that Your mercy be found, more. Forgive us, we pray, of our sins. Let us turn to Calvary now and be reminded that we were once your enemies, but now we have been welcomed to your table. And as we gather around your table, may we be reminded of your grace and mercy today. Be reminded of your love for us through Christ our Savior, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.